Sweet. All right, we're live. Josh, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for coming on. Um, we have Josh Galbincha here with us. Ever since meeting your wife, she was like, yeah, if you guys ever need help, I've got... Uh, I've got like a guy that I know that can do like some VFX and stuff. And we're like, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it'd be great. Like we're always looking to meet new people and stuff. And she's like, okay, I just sent you. It's real. And uh, she's like, it's my husband. And we're like, what? And so we watch it. And Dustin, who's my business partner, um, we were just blown away. And <laughs> uh, you're incredibly talented. VFX artist and VFX supervisor. What was your first experience like going from being the VFX artist versus leading a team? So the, the, my first official time that I got that role, um, I was working on a show called Jane the Virgin and uh, for CW. And um, I was there for the second and third season. And it was, uh, it was a learning process and it was... Um, it was very interesting. Um, I learned so much through it. Um, you know, there's a lot that, that I think I could have changed or done differently. And there's a lot that I think at the, the company that I was at at the time um, was a very much a smaller company. Um, so there were, there were definitely hurdles and things that I had to overcome. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was very much a learning process. And I think, I think through that, through that specific journey, um, I learned more about like the onset side of it because I was on set a lot for that show. Uh, even though that show doesn't seem like it has grandiose effects, there's a lot of set extensions. There's a lot of different things. And, um, the production, uh, um, definitely, you know, wanted someone there to say, Hey, are we shooting it right? Are we not shooting it right? Um, and so a lot of it, a lot of it could, could be like a hurry up and wait, um, for, for certain days where they're like, okay, we might need, we might need to shoot this different. So let's just bring Josh on set for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other days were like things were, that were very, very specific, like, you know, something happens in the show where there's definitely green screen or, uh, a CG effect that's happening. So, um, but I, I would say through that whole experience, I definitely learned set etiquette more than I ever have. Um, because Jane the Virgin had a guest director almost every single episode. So I was constantly working with a new director every episode for 24 episodes for two seasons. Wow. So that was really, and you know, some people actually came back and directed again, which was great. Um, and then I also learned, um, you know, I cut my teeth on that show, like working with like, production designers, art directors. Um, Hey, can we, can we put this up and just make this green instead of like printing a sign for it? Um, or su- even suggesting we should do this that way, that way you can change the sign to whatever you want afterwards. Um, so there's a lot that w- like I cut my teeth on that with the, with the crew. And that was a really, really special show to me because I felt like I was family on that show. Um, and maybe, maybe, you will always feel like that when you come back for a second season, everyone's happy to see each other again and whatnot. Um, but for my first official title that, that holds a special place to my heart. Um, I still, uh, I still kept my Manhattan beach key card to sign in 
awesome. obviously it's deactivated and they asked for it back, but uh, that's going in the keepsake book. And, uh, um, you know, it just holds such a special place to my heart. And when I told them that I was moving on and I wasn't going to do the next season, mm. um, uh, one of the producers almost started crying and it was like so special to me because it was just like, uh, and I'm talking about producer on client side, like the wow. people that were making the show is a, uh, a sweet older gentleman. And, you know, he was just like, well, we're super happy and thankful that you were here. And so I don't know. <clears throat> wow. I really feel like on that show, I cut my teeth with learning how to work with the crew, um, learning how to work with different personalities for sure. Um, and learning how to explain how we need to shoot something, why we need to shoot something a certain way, um, which is oddly enough, there's a lot of like DPs and um, producers out there who have been in the industry for a long time and kind of have gotten into their flow of like what they're doing, but they don't really understand the effects. A lot of people don't understand the effects. Um, so uh, that was really, really a, a good uh, learning, learning process of like how to explain things. Um, and we didn't even have like tech viz. So it's like, you literally have to like, well, we, we shoot it this way and here's what we do in post. And then they just have to trust you because they don't even understand after you explain it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, my wife and I are actually going through Jane the Virgin right now. She's watched <laughs> okay. it and, uh, <laughs> and loves it's her favorite show. And so I'm, been going through it and i love it too it's one of those things where it's like ah uh, i'm not gonna like this but i'll like just watch it with you and then i get into it and i think we're on like the fourth or fifth season now yeah we're getting close to the end and uh i'm just i'm loving it i'm so in and i have i was thinking the other day when we were watching it how much vfx there actually is in it um like whether you're it's cutting to like a fantasy of hers that she's having you know she does this thing where she like it jumps to a alternate kind of reality of what could have happened like you mm -hmm. know a, a conversation between someone or something crazy happens and then it's like poof gone that's not actually what happened it's back to reality and yeah, yeah. there's a lot of little vfx moments in through that um and i was thinking about i was like man i wonder what like because it's such a it feels like such a simple and like clean show um yet there's a lot that i was just kind of realizing that went into so that's super cool to hear that that you worked on that you know the, the first episode of season two when i started literally the first episode uh she jumps off like there, there's that like internal thing happening where she's on the island and she jumps off into the waterfall i don't know if you remember that yeah. um it's it's incredible because like the whole the whole that whole shot where she's going down into the water like uh she was on a stunt, like they had brought in a stunt actor on a stunt rig, um, built this huge, like, like frame, put the camera up on a, on a crane pointing down and basically like shot her jumping off and like going down. Uh, and they put a blue screen out, you know, we had them put a blue screen out on the very bottom. And, um, obviously we're on a soundstage and you can't get as high as you want. So there's a lot that like a lot of simple a lot of simple effects in there, but like, obviously it's just a, a matter of a blue key, right? You get the angle, you get the blue key, but now you have to build the environment that she's around and you have to make it look like it's at the right angle and right lensing of the, of the camera. And then we couldn't actually get high enough as they wanted because we were at the, the limit of like the top of the soundstage. So we, 
Uh, we just did a digital takeover of like shrinking her down even smaller to make her look like she's like moving further away. So it's a lot of, a lot of like, um, it's puzzles, you know, it's, it's a lot of puzzles and a lot of visual puzzles. Um, you know, that's a huge part of it. What are some tips that you would give to DPs and directors on, uh, incorporating like when they're shooting for VFX, like what are some like, just like very basic tips that you would offer as a VFX supervisor? Um, I, so I think, I think the first thing that comes to mind is green screens. Um, uh, if you, if you know your, if you don't know what's outside, shoot, shoot a neutrally lit green screen. If you know that outside or something outside is supposed to be darker, go like a stop or a half a stop under the exposure. If you know that it's supposed to be brighter, go a stop or half a stop brighter. Um, and this, I think, you know, if, if anyone's listening, who's a compositor, they'll absolutely agree with this because a lot of times we'll get really bright green screen and you're supposed to put nighttime outside. And then you get all of this like wrap and edge things of just super bright, like window sills, super bright window edges and super bright everything. And you're like, okay, well, and it starts to spill in interior as well, but it's like, we can, we can pull a good key on something that we don't need it to be like overlit. Mm. Um, alternatively, if you know that like, it's a super bright day outside, um, you can do a, you know, half a stop, stop over, uh, because then once you put like a bright sky that those edges of whatever you're keying, like, and you put that bright image behind there, it's going to blend in better. Um, so I would say, I would say that's thing number one. Um, if you know what's outside kind of expose for what's outside, um, and, and most, in most cases, like, you know, if you're shooting area red, it doesn't need to be raw. If you just like four, 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 like you're going to have the information there to, to pull that key. Um, so that would, that would be something that I would say, like, you know, like, Oh, know what the, what the environment is and kind of light the green screen for it. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're here to help. If there's a question, ask us. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to, you know, a lot of, the, there's a lot that I don't understand about the camera department. Um, I, I, I love my DSLR camera. I think it can shoot pretty well, but like when it comes to the ebbs and flows of like that whole thing, um, there's a lot that's going on. So, uh, we're there to help. Um, we're there to, to, to keep the show on, on budget and, and get the information that we need to bring back to the post house. Um, and I know that, you know, a lot of times, people get to like, cool, I shot it, I'm done, on to the next project. And while they're doing that, there's people struggling in a post house trying to fix a lot of stuff. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of fix it in post. But I would say just uh, if, if there is a question, just where, and you have a supervisor on set, call us over, radio, radio us over, or like just, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, we free float from show to show and they're like, hey, get the VFX guy over here. They don't even remember your name. So it's like, but we're here to help. So don't be afraid to ask. Um, and usually if, 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 you know, whatever, we'll just give you a quick answer or 
something like that. And a lot of times too, like I find um, that helps too. Like I was just on a shoot where someone was like, Hey, can we shoot this? Or do we need to move this? And it was something where, or do we need to put tracking markers up? And if you've worked in that field at all, like you can look at something and, and realize that there's like 35 different like hard edge corners that you can clearly see. And you know, like, okay, anybody can track that. No, we don't need to put like tracking markers up everywhere. Um, or, hey, uh, can we paint this out? And if it's already a VFX shot of like something that you know and had planned for, like, hey, we can't remove this this box in the back on the wall, we're gonna have to paint that out. And there's another picture frame right above it. You're like, well, we're gonna paint both out then, and that's fine. Don't even worry about moving it. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of what we a lot of what we do, um, you know, is not is there's a lot of like big, huge VFX planning, but there's also a lot of like, no, let's not slow down the, you know, momentum and let's just shoot it. We're good. That, that won't cost any extra. That's just going to be something that we're going to add into what we already know, like we were going to do. That's really good. That makes a lot of sense. Kind of wanted to hear about your journey working on bigger budget films and TV shows. I went to a local community college for digital design. Um, and then I was like, okay, you know what? I, not knowing anything about the film industry, not knowing anything about the VFX industry. I'm like, well, if I want to further, if I really want to make it, I need to further my education, um, which I'm not knocking at all. Uh, but I will say the best thing that came out of film school was my wife. Um, so, um, we moved, we got married and moved. We, we graduated, got married and moved all within like a month, uh, to Los Angeles. And, um, you know, we, we had planned that out, um, accordingly. And, uh, what we didn't know is we moved to Los Angeles in 2008 in the middle of that writer strike. Um, and we didn't know what was going on. So we, we, um, you know, the, the, we had wedding money and a prayer. Um, which I think was to our advantage um, because it was like, Hey, do or die, you know? So we just got odd jobs. Um, I had a friend who worked in the costume department um, from that I grew up with in Cleveland. Uh, and so he hooked me up uh, pretty much right away when things were shooting again. And, so I, I, had, I had been on set working in the costume department. That was my first introduction to the film industry. Um, and there's probably a handful of, of shows that I worked on. Uh, I, you know, I don't even know if I got, uh, I don't know if I got a credit in it or not, but mm. I was in the costume department on the Expendables. Um, wow. And then I was also, uh, uh, I was also in the costume department on Band of Brothers, and um, so there was. I had I had been on on set working on on some cooler shows, but like I knew nothing about the industry still. But and and it wasn't the department or the thing that I wanted to do. Um, so, um, you know, in in my head at the time, I I thought, well, it's either New York or Los Angeles are the two biggest like filming locations. Um, but it still wasn't VFX and I didn't realize at the time and still to some degree today, like VFX were, it's still like a, a, a subset, you know, it's, it's the post-production it's, 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 um, you know, so 
and a lot of that was going on in Vancouver at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or, and, and, or other places that were offering subsidies. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd gotten a job in, you know, uh, graphic design and motion graphics doing DVD menus and things like that back in the day in Los Angeles. And then shortly after that, um, I think my first official like VFX shop that I worked at was Zoic Studios. And um, I was working on TV shows in the Roto paint department. So that, that felt great. Cause I was like, okay, finally, I'm like, I'm working in, in TV and film and mostly TV, but like, it's still super fun. Um, and I was as happy as I could be rotoing my heart out, um, you know, uh, working in Nuke for the first time. Um, so that was awesome. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I had worked at a, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I, I met some other friends there and we were doing like 3D stereo conversion for a little bit. More roto, because uh, we passed all of that off to the people who were like painting in behind, so you could get like the stereoscopic uh, left and right eye and stuff. And um, so from there, I had worked at a company called Hydraulics um, and worked on a handful of feature films, and that felt like you know. So every step like felt like I was making it. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked on Gulliver's Travel with Jack Black. I worked on Battle Los Angeles, um, and I worked on um, Skyline, both alien movies. Um, and that was a really good experience for me. Um, that was kind of like the night shift. Um, so, uh, you know, just rotoing overnight, basically. Um, I would come home and kiss my wife as she was leaving for work. Uh, so... There's and then then a lot of commercial work came after that, um, which was I will say this: uh, my career feels like it's been evenly divvied between TV, commercial, and film, and all three of those things have different, vastly different paces, styles, and things that I've learned from all of them. So I will say the commercial work is fantastic for building your skill sets fast because you're every 30 to 60 days, you're working on something new. And one day it could be like a Nike shoe comes down and it's leaving fire on the ground behind it. The next day you're working on like a video game commercial where there's like CG dragons. You know, the next day you could be working on um, a sport thing where, you know, I worked on a champ sports spot, which was really fun. I think it was the first official, commercial I worked on that was like uh, I was they put me in the compositing chair so I was actually compositing and not just doing roto anymore Uh, and it was like um, a guy in a green screen outfit with a shirt and shorts and he was doing all this parkour stuff and we kind of like keyed him out and reprojected like to clean up the background so it just looks like moving shirt and shorts and um, uh, you know that was super fun for me Um, and so you you learn a lot of skills quickly in the commercial world. Um, so then then from basically all of that, that's in 2011. Um, I chose to go up to Vancouver, Canada to work on Man of Steel, and uh, my wife came with me. It was a crazy uh, 
time in our life, you know, the moving, um, there's a lot of like controversy about chasing subsidies and stuff. Um, and I do agree that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult topic, but for me and my wife at the time, it was an adventure. Um, so we went up there and for six months I worked on man of steel and, um, uh, super fun, uh, really cut my teeth on compositing on that show and really understood that was the first time I've ever seen a true feature pipeline where they had like a groom and hair department. They had like a modeling department. They had like proper training to even like the first two days was just learning how to use and log into their, you know, tailored version of Linux. And, um, it was just, it was super fun, uh, super fun pun intended, I guess. But, uh, uh, so that's, I, I still, I might even still have it. Let me see here. Yeah. So I, I wrote down like all the different departments. This is from 2011. I wrote down like, like, uh, just a bunch of stuff like roto prep paint, like the different, like, like things, grain, uh, regraining box references, projection and working safe resolutions, full res resolutions. Um, I'm not going to show this list because, uh, by the way, love you, MPC. Uh, you guys taught me a lot, and it was been a. I worked off and on there for seven years, but like I have like written down like all of their different like um, naming conventions for like input scans, cleaned input scans, uh, all of this stuff, and so every, I I wrote down everything, and I, I absorbed so much while I was there. Um, linear log. DI color timing notes, um, key light despill, core despill. Um, and this is you just like absorbing all new Just absorbing everything. Um, model resolutions, uh, you know, because obviously you don't need a 7 million poly model that's like in the background. So a lot of that stuff can be, um, they'll have different like, different model resolutions for different like areas of where they are in the scene. Um, and so I wrote a, a whole bunch of stuff down. Um, and uh, uh, so man of steel was really like, I cut my teeth on, on feature work and the feature pipeline. And I really, at that time in my life, um, I had only been doing roto paint and then I got into compositing through commercial world. So that was, and I'd worked on some features, but it was um, features at commercial shops. So it was like, you know, the, the lower tier things, like I would say like, uh, you know, t TV screens or phone screens or things like, or chat bubbles um, are another huge thing. Yeah. So, but then here I was working at a actual VFX house where they had like a full digi double of Henry Cavill with a groom department, with a cloth department, with like, you know, and, and we were doing digi takeovers of like him smashing through stuff, like the stunt man, like jumping. And then like he takes over to digi double and it was really, really fun. Um, and, uh, uh, I worked under Guillaume, Guillaume Rock, Rockroon. Uh, I think, I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> it's a French name. Uh, but he had, he had won a, um, Oscar for his work on life of Pi, mm. Um, and then oddly enough, um, 
I worked on a on a film recently for Hulu called No One, no One Will Save You. And um, he jumped in to help out the main VFX supervisor who stepped away for um, uh, a few weeks because there were some issues. And um, and I saw him, and I hadn't seen him since 2011. I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but like I, I worked with you on Man of Steel. And uh, um, I told him one of the shots that I had of like Feora trying to catch the missile in the street. And uh, he totally remembered me. And it was just it was really, really weird. But uh, um, so that was my first foray into uh, uh, like the feature world, even though I had done work on, on um, Gulliver's Travel, Skyline, Battle LA, that was just purely roto and paint work. Uh, this was compositing. I was getting CG assets. I was getting like, you know, this was, I was there. Like I was the last person besides color to touch those frames before they were in the theater. Um, so that was really special to me. Um, and I remember, I remember a lot of my friends, um, we came back to LA afterwards and a lot of my friends, we, we rented, like I had not rented. We had two, at least two rows of the theater from like friends that were like bought tickets to go with us. Um, and it was just super special. So, uh, anyway, huge, huge part of like my career, I would say just, and just being an artist, I, I loved every minute of it. Um, and I would do it all over again. Um, so what's it take to go from rotoing all night to then being the compositor on man of steel? So, uh, well, not the compositor, a compositor. A compositor. <laughs> I want to make that clear. Movies like that don't get done without like a massive amount of like artists and, and supervisors and things like that. So um, I would say I, the, the generic question there is, is it takes a little bit of skill, um, some talent, and some the just to just try over and over and then apply for places again to get it. Um, for me, I, I felt like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, uh, uh, having, having a degree helped me with like a work visa. Um, I think Canada and other places choose people that have degrees cause they can do like a specialized work visa, like special skill work visa. Um, but um, there's a lot of things for me that came into place. Like, you know, my wife and I were both willing to go to Canada to do that. Um, and, um, you know, I had, I had cut my teeth for three years on just nothing but roto and paint, uh, which I think is really, really good for people to do. Um, everyone wants to label themselves as a compositor or junior compositor first. Um, I'm not knocking that at all. For me, I was a roto and paint artist and a roto and paint lead for three years and it was monotonous and that's all I did. But I think it helped me understand edge work. It helped me understand attention to detail. Um, and it helped me understand compositing fundamentals from the get-go uh, because that's literally, I was working inside the software that you use to eventually composite in. So all while I was doing the roto and paint, I was like experimenting with other nodes and trying to like figure stuff out. I would, you know, I would open scripts and look at like what people were doing to like 
see how to do it myself. I would come home and I would do tutorials online. Um, and, uh, you know, I would just absorb, absorb, absorb as much as I could. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of, a lot of dedication and hard work, I guess, is another, another thing for that. So, um, and feature world is, is a little bit different in that, um, you're not working on a shot for like a, a day or two or three. You're working on a shot for a week or a month, uh, depending on how big it is. So I think the, the other thing that you need to realize, especially if you're an artist, is when you get notes, um, take it to heart. And you will get notes over and over and over and over and over again because, you know, that's how you you guide a shot into pixel perfectness and and get it to where it, it needs to be. Um, and it's not an easy task. It's a hard thing to do, um, both on the artist and supervisor side. And um, but that's just part of the process. And I I don't think you should take it personally or like how good of an artist you are. Um, I think I think. Uh, coming to grips with, I'm going to work on something and it's going to change. It's going to get notes. Um, you know, and in feature world too, I, I feel like, I feel like a shot isn't done until it's absolutely due. <laughs> so you might be working on something and tweaking it over and over and over and over again until like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Why is this shot taking forever? Like, and it, and it has nothing to do with, with it's no, we're going to continue to push it forward until like we have to deliver it. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. I think that's a huge point for artists to take home is like um, the leadership is in place to continually push a shot forward until, until it has no budget left or it has no time left or both. Um, because I mean, otherwise things can start to look bad, <laughs> but if there's more time and more budget to work on a shot, why wouldn't you want to push that forward and make, make the story clearer, the, the movie better and the final product, like, you know, so. Yeah. With the bigger budget content and talking about how there's multiple, multiple compositors, you know, there's, there's so many different. VFX houses working on different scenes in a movie, I'm often impressed with how the shots look cohesive and the, the artists all achieve a similar look and quality. I'm really curious to hear how that works on a big scale as a VFX supervisor. How do you control that quality and make sure everything is cohesive to the director's vision? Notes, <laughs> notes, notes, notes. So, so yes, uh, the artists do not make everything look cohesive. Um, so that's why you have to be like, hey, look at this shot. Look at this shot. Um, look at look at Brian's shot. Look at Sarah's shot. Like, try to copy that look. This was a this is an approved look for it. Um, VFX is not made up of shots. It's made up of sequences. Um, shots are made up of things that are going into the shots. But like, you you almost never as a studio provide like a one-off shot, whether a big one or a small one. Uh, if you're, if you're a smaller shop, you're not, it'd be weird if you were like, Hey, we got awarded one 
phone screenshot. <laughs> okay, cool. Give it to this person and they'll do it. And it doesn't matter. Um, a lot of times it'll be a sequence. Hey, people are texting back and forth. Um, or if there's, if there's like a, a dragon, right. In a show and uh, whether it's like, you know, let's say it could be game of Thrones or it could be like a movie uh, and you need that quality of dragon. Uh, it'd be weird for that to also just be one shot. So what you try to do is you try to, you know, the producers, the VFX soups, the comp soups, um, a lot of people involved, coordinators, will try to schedule one artist or a few artists on on this thing because we know that like okay if they're do, if they're all doing multiple versions of that shot, they're going to kind of dial it into the same look and feel of it, um, and. A lot of times, like on, 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 like if you have a massive, massive thing, right? Like let's say there's 300 shots and they all have like CG fire or, or practical fire elements. Um, uh, and so with that amount of shots, you need a lot of artists to get through in the amount of time. So a lot of it's going to be, okay, well, we can't narrow this down just to like, you know, three or four people can't do all of these shots. So we need to put more people on it. So that's where dailies comes in. You look at it and, and a note could be like, Hey, make this look more like this shot or, um, or it could be a simple note like, Hey, this looks good, but like, uh, your fire is a little bit too blown out. Let's expose back on it. Um, so thing one would be the amount of artists that you can put on it, um, to try to, you know, keep the look to a, a closer amount of like artists who are doing it. But if you, if you don't have that luxury, then obviously like the, that's where the notes come in and it disseminates down too. So it's like, um, if multiple houses are working on, on the same sequence, um, you know, that a big part of our job is making sure our sequence looks cohesive. Um, and then, then we, send that, you know, along to the client and then the show supervisor then looks at those shots and says, okay, um, you know, this is looking good. This is looking good, but we need to make this look a little bit more like this. Um, you know, and that could be like, uh, for instance, She-Hulk, um, we did a lot of set extension on She-Hulk. Uh, and I know that another vendor also did as well, but we were both using the same Los Angeles, uh, you know, stills for the background. Um, so we, we, in a few, in a few instances, we actually set the look first for what it should look like. So that vendor had to try to match kind of like the look and feel that we had. And in some instances they had something that was working really, really well. So, um, that was sent over to us as reference and, uh, you know, they're like, Hey, this is working for this, for this angle or whatever. So try to match the look in daylight and stuff like that outside the windows for this. So it's, it's, that's where the VFX managerial side of things comes into play because it's, 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 you know, Hey, and that's where the notes come into play too. And that's why people shouldn't be so hard up on, on, on themselves. Um, because a lot of times it's like, you just, just inch it forward, inch it forward, inch it forward. And with so many moving parts, you might be inching, 
and so many different people, right? It could be artists, it could be shops, it could be artists and shops who are all trying to equilibrium into the middle <laughs> until until the time runs out. So that makes a lot of sense. It's like essentially it's everyone's <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's everyone's responsibility mm -hmm. to have it be cohesive. It's the artists as they're working on the thing, but then it's also the supervisors and then even the client side supervisors. Just yep. the the more higher you get, the more th that's their probably their thing they're honing in on. Yeah. It's cohesion. Is that ever an issue like um for you guys? Like do you ever find that like being the thing that you spend a lot of time on or does it just kind of happen because you have such skilled artists? It it depends. Uh, you know, it, it all depends. I think I think um I think with time with time you like you you develop your creative eye and you can start to see things that like oh, you know what? This is this this person's like, let's say it's a driving sequence. This person's sky looks just a little bit brighter or a little bit grayer for some reason. Um, they're, you know, like, so you can see, and it, it you won't notice it or it, it almost doesn't even, some stuff is like minuscule, but I feel like over time you start to develop your creative eye. And especially if you, you know, if you watch stuff back, cut together with all of like the most recent comps, like you'll see like, Oh, this jumps a little bit. And now this is a little bit darker, a little bit brighter of a sky. So let's, uh, you know, or we, so a lot of what we do sometimes too, is we make contact sheets. Um, and that's something I have my comp soups do a lot is, um, we'll, we'll comp, we'll contact sheet a sequence in nuke so we can see everything in context and look at each frame of like each driving sequence and be like, Oh, you know what? This one looks a little bit like, you know, so, so sometimes it's watching it in playback. Sometimes it's what, like looking at a contact sheet and like pointing out, like, what can we change to make it better? Um, and here's the thing. Um, I think any, any VFX shop, you know, that's, that's really good. will uh, let's say it's a driving sequence. Um, so like, uh, you know, shout out drivingplates.com. You get your drive, you get your background plate. Um, and they're driving down a road and you put that into your, you know, driving comp and you have it like, so, you know, it's, it's in context where like you're further down the road every time you cut back to that angle, but now you're in a part where like, maybe they turn a corner and it's a different part of the sky in the background plate or something like that. And then things start to look different. Maybe the greenery is not as green or maybe the sky, because like there's clouds on this side, it looks darker. And a lot of times like, you know, there'll be some pushback, like, oh, I'm using the same background plate, you know? Well, that's good. They're like, good, you're using the same background plate, but we need to do a little bit of extra work to that background plate. Um, pull a key on the sky, pull a key on the green of the trees and try to make it match the same saturation values as the shot before it. And I know the shot before it is literally in the same driving context, right? But um, but we want it to match as close as we can. So you might need to do a little bit of extra work, even though it's it, it, your background is 10 seconds after the shot before, but you might need to do a little bit of extra work on that background to make it match into the sequence better. And I think, I think, you know, again, it's it, not to, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but it's, it's, it's just, it's everyone's job, right? Uh, 
compositors, you know, we have amazing tools where they can look at the shots before and after as many shots before and after as they want. We can like auto load, like an edit for them. Um, we do the same. We have contact sheets, comp soups help out with that stuff too. And then we, we view it in dailies and we watch it in context and you just try to like hone it all in. Um, and then, then you fire it off to client um, and then hope that it, it's matching everything else. So, and if you do your job well, it, it is. So, yeah. Um, can you share uh, a story about a particularly challenging shot or sequence in uh, She-Hulk that you worked on? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think, I think one of the more challenging shots, uh, there's a, there's a shot, that we did where Mr. Immortal jumps out a window and um, uh, it, when I, so that was very, very challenging because it was a, it was a full glass sim um, and getting the glass to shatter and look right. Uh, you know, any Houdini artist that is listening to this knows it's not a matter of just uh um, you can't just like, oh, hey, here, I made a CG plane. I'm going to click, you know, glass setting and have this object run at it. Because then you, you start to get like weird anomalies, like things break apart and explode in ways that don't feel natural. The gravity, setting the gravity and, and having it feel like. So, and this is a giant pane of glass in a, in a you know, skyscraper downtown Los Angeles. So, one of the things that I found, uh, there's a, there's a movie called Raid Redemption and it's like a, it's like a, uh, I would say it's like a, not a Kung Fu, but it's like more of like an action gun action style, like uh foreign film. And there's a scene where they're fighting in a kitchen and some guy gets kicked through a pane of glass and, uh, you know, they obviously they spark it. And it breaks before he just before he hits, but the way that his body pushes the glass out looks amazing. And um, so I kind of use that as inf inspiration of like, because it's a giant glass uh, pane in the middle of this like kitchen. So I was like, okay, that's kind of like, I think that that would look really cool if like when he jumps out the window, if his head hits it first, it cracks around the head and around the shoulders. And as he pushes out, like the glass is pushing out in front of him. And we, we did a lot of iterations of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we went back and forth with Marvel to get that to look right. Um, you know, showing them as we were updating and iterating that stage, uh, like throughout all the different stages of the simming of the glass. Um, we did, uh, we did side angles so you could see like um, the CG room that we made uh, and the, we did uh rotomation of the character. So that was the actual like geo that was like breaking and pushing the glass. Um, so you could see everything in context. And that was just, I mean, I remember that being a really hard shot because it, it took a lot of work to like, a lot of back and forth, a lot of like, okay, now we're, now we're going too overboard or we're, it's not too much, you know, or glass is flying everywhere. We got to technically solve like why this is happening. Uh, and then there was other things too, like how much glass pushes outward versus how much shatter falls down and hits the sill. 
um, so we had some really cool, like, uh, like a few pieces, like hit the sill, but then they were like spinning, they were stuck, but they were spinning indefinitely. Um, so it's like, how do we like, okay. So there was a lot of weird, like, uh, you know, Houdini is not a one button click kind of thing. There's a lot that goes into simming things and making them look like realistic and right. Uh, but we had some great artists working on that and, um, uh, so they were super, super patient because I think uh, we went through a lot of internal uh, <laughs> versions of that. So Nice. Um, can you also share in reading uh, some of the interviews? I thought the story about Daredevil's cowl was really interesting. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about your work on that? Sure. So uh, that was just basically a, a suit enhancement. Um, there's a... Uh, so he he comes home with Jen, uh, and they're kissing, um, and uh, he has his mask on, but the under cowl part is off. And I'm not sure if that was like a, a decision that later got changed, or if they they didn't put it on him, like costume wise, or I'm not sure what the situation was. But whatever it was, we needed to add it back in because he he they wanted him to have it on underneath his mask so the cowl is like the basically like the it's like a it's like a ski mask but like with the oval cut out of the face that goes underneath the helmet and you see it run down like into his like jacket so we had to do full rotomation of daredevil um and we had like a full model scan that was given to us so we could kind of like make sure the shoulders and the helmet like were rotating correctly um and then we did uh we had the cowl as a cg element as well so um we basically put that into the shoulders and the head and then did like a, a cloth sim um and it's it's not a cloth sim in the sense of like cloth because it's more of like a padded leather kind of like element yeah. uh, but we wanted to make sure that it was rotating and, and 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 felt like it was sat underneath like everything correctly um and then he pulls his helmet off and no one no one knew what that looked like because we've never actually seen him do that so it's like is it connected um to the helmet um if he's pulling his helmet off like this like, does his cowl stay? It can't now because we have to show it coming off with the helmet. But is it is it like a zipper down the front of the neck or is it a zipper in the back? Like, or like Velcro? Like, like so um, So what we did is we, we ended up making it like a uh, kind of like split in the back. Um, so when he pulls his helmet off and tosses it aside, like you see kind of, it, it's a more pleasing kind of thing. Cause it's not just like a tube of like cloth. It looks like it has like purpose and uh, it's, it connects in the back so you can put it on like, you know, Velcro or snap it back there. Um, so we had to figure out like where we wanted to split it, how we wanted to split it and then sim that. So it looked a little bit more realistic of, of like having that flow open after he takes his helmet off. Um, but Marvel, Marvel is really great with their onset data acquisition and they had like, Tons of reference photography, um, which helps with rotomation. Because if you can do a layout of cameras, and like if you rotate a shoulder and it looks correct, but you can look at it in CG from a different angle, 
You can like inch it in more closer to where it was. And then there's HDRIs galore of like the scenes so you can relight the cowl. Um, which was important that we relit the cowl not only with the HDRIs but with the helmet and the jacket itself because it casts shadows onto the cowl. Um, so, you know, it was just a, a lot of like a fine tuning work to get that to work correctly. Going real basic here, can you break down Rotomation? Rotomation is basically if you if you have a character moving in the scene and you need to add something to that character or that character needs to cast a shadow that wasn't casted or something, you need to take a physical model of that person and camera track it. So you have the camera where the camera would be in world space and then the Rotomation would be you're actually animating that physical model on top of where that person exists in the CG scene. So if you have me waving like this and you have a perfect scan or model of my body, you're like tracking my face and the model is moving with my head underneath. So, um, you know, like you can see like the shadow cast on my head, right? Like, but if, if you wanted to do that with a CG hand, you know, like you'd have to have my hand and, and, and all of that. So basically you're, anytime you see someone like holding fire in their hand or anytime you see someone like jumping and doing a superhero like takeoff, right? And you're you're going into the digi double, you need to do rotomation like a few frames before so it it seamlessly blends into that digi digital version or you know like someone someone gets hit by a laser beam and it leaves like a huge like uh kind of like spread of like ashes on their on their superhero costume or something like that um that's not there on set you want to you want to rotomate it so it like tracks with their actual body and and stuff like that so it's just it's a way of like tracking animating that's the roto anim part of it. And then the roto part of it is like the manual part of like manually animating something in that place. So you can add something to it later or, or use that model to then like have something interact or take over. Another good example, actually, um, Henry Cavill, uh, a lot of, a lot of the scenes, his cape was CG. So you need to roto animate him doing the move and wrote, you know, so that way when, if he turns, it flows with his movement when you're, when you're simming it. So wow. tracking department does some really crazy stuff. Uh, you know, they're, they're definitely, they're definitely their own, their own department and their own set of like amazing wizards that, that do that. I've seen people track stuff that I'm just like, I have no idea what you locked onto and how you did that, but how you approach coming up with new ideas when you're creating um, something visually as opposed to just copying from someone else. I think a lot of artists, a lot of times will just, sh or directors will just share like, hey, we wanna make it like this, um, which is helpful, but is there another way that you come up with fresh approaches to things and what would that be as opposed to just like copying from something that's already been done before? Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think, I do think, you know, one, one of the things that we have to do is we do have to listen to the director. Um, 
And if there is a style or something that they've seen before and they're using it as reference, um, it's a difficult thing because sometimes, sometimes we have to lean into a look that's already been established. Um, and that's not always a bad thing, but I, I think the greater, the greater thing is like, what is best for the story? Um, so thinking about that, right. What is best for the story? Um, if it's if it's a really high energy kind of like effect, right? Um, then, or something that you haven't seen, like magic, right? Magic is a huge weird thing in in storytelling, right? What does it look like if someone casts magic missile? Um, you know, what what do spells look like? Um, Doctor Strange is a great example of 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 that. Um, so developing a visual language is always, I think there's, if the budget allows for it, you'll probably have concept artists before a single frame is shot. Um, so a lot of the times you'll have concept artists coming up with some cool stuff. Um, concept, concept art is a huge part of that. And it's, it's actually its own department. And there's, own, there's companies that just do concept art. So um, if I have the ability to hire concept artists um, or, or bring people in from our art department to kind of like concept things out, I think that that's a great thing to do. Um, uh, it's definitely inspiring. Um, but, then, but then again, like I said, like it always goes back to like what's most important for the story. And I love what they did with like Dr. Strange. Um, and and Wanda and you know like these different different spellcasters in a sense like have a different visual language to like how their spells look. Um, Doctor Strange is very like orange red sparky kind of like you know or or like the uh, symbols and things like that. Wanda's magic is more her chaos magic is more like wavy and like sharp edged as like it goes you know so it has its own language. Um, Personally, how do I come up with, with ideas and, and looks to things? I think there's two ways, inspiration and exploration. Uh, inspiration would be everything I've ever seen in the past um, will inspire me. Um, and that's not to say that like uh, I, I steal or take any of that stuff. I think, I think that stuff, taking in as much art as you can, um, and letting it marinate, you know, you'll, you'll come up with a, some sort of new version of stew, creative stew that like, you know, has a whole bunch of ingredients in it and it becomes its own visual thing. So I think inspiration is a huge part for, for any artist. just consume as much as you can, um, buy art books, buy the art of, or, or, um, uh, or go to the library and, and check them out. Um, there's tons of, of books on, on, every single movie and TV show that you can find like inspiration of concept art and stuff. Um, and then the exploration process is also, in my opinion, just, it's just as fun because sometimes you are sitting down with, with software and you're, you're ex exploring or experimenting um, and you come up with something that looks really cool or you uh, you're like, hey, you know what, I'm going to come up with three ideas or five ideas of like, what this could be to pitch or whatever. And then 
um, you know, through that process, you find, you find different things that like you, you know, maybe, maybe you have one or two good ideas in your head, but you're like, you know what, I'm going to do a little bit of variation. So you, so I think the exploring process is super important to kind of find other cool things. What, in your opinion, is the future of advancement in VFX? I think real-time rendering is is a huge possibility. Um, AI is also on the forefront of that, but not not for the reasons everyone's scared about. I think um, so. Let me touch those two: real-time rendering, things like Unreal Engine and stuff like that, like global illumination, specularity, reflection, and all that stuff. That's like like becoming real time is actually incredible. Um, and the fact that like unreal engine can like have millions and millions of polys, like you could basically export a, a full rendered or a full ZBrush model or whatever you're sculpting in and import it directly in. And, uh, the engine can handle it is, is quite impressive. Um, and I would say that like Unreal Engine is not just the only thing out there. There's like render engines that are using GPUs and things like that that are getting faster and faster. So I think I think the speed, and this isn't controversial. I just think the speed at which we're gonna be able to iterate and and create things is just gonna get quicker and quicker. So from like artist mind to like screen is gonna continually over the next year, uh, ten years, just get incredibly fast um we're already seeing that with like ember gen and and other software that like is is just real time or near real time with creating like really cool effects and things like that um and then i think um ai is definitely a huge thing and and, and this is controversial because like there's a lot of like you know like i don't even think we're really tapping the surface of like what it can or should be used for but um, it could be used for, you know, ethically, right? Not not necessarily concept art or things like that, where it has to build off of like a set of of yeah. probably uh, copyrighted artwork. But like yeah. you could like um, theoretically, you could like shoot shoot images of people swimming, put it into a training model. And then when you get motion capture data, let's say for like Avatar, um, you could like, you could have it automatically smooth out the captured animation curves based off of like what it thinks, you know. And so, so rather than just going in there and like smoothing out curves, you could have AI smooth out those curves based off of images or video of actual people swimming. So there's a lot of things that you can do I think that like we're just scratching the surface of that like not necessarily uh replace or do anything but help assist as a tool for yeah. and we're seeing we're we're seeing that used now in facial animation as well like um lips the way lips purse and move and stuff and you can even like look at my mouth and like I I talk you know out of a certain side when I say certain syllables and things like that and it's those little nuanced things that like if you can capture that from an actor, then train you know the the models of the lips area to kind of like copy that. Like I think that there's so much behind that. Um, 
that can just get us out of uncanny valley and in, into like like wow that was like what i'm seeing is like blowing my mind and we're starting to see the 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 start of that now i think so in the next 10 years it's just going to get like mind-bogglingly insane and when you talk about ai and real-time rendering what impact does that have on storytelling the end the end result well i think i don't know that it has any impact on storytelling i think storytelling well okay so it depends on what you mean if we're talking about like ai writing scripts i think that that's a very bad idea um i i think i think in the in the same way if uh i can look at a film and look at fire and be like, that looks like that was rendered using this, or that looks like it was like, um, uh, you know, it's, it's Houdini fire. It's, it's Embergen. It's whatever things start to have a look to it. And I feel like if you have, if you have AI writing scripts, it's all model based and you're going to have eventually movies are going to be watered down to feel like they're all, coming from AI and that's weird to say, but like, I, I think that that's true. If you go to mid journey, mid journey has a look to yeah. it. Dolly has a look to it. Cause they're all based off the same model of like all the different images that they're doing. So um, from a storytelling standpoint, I think it's a bad idea. Um, I, I heard someone say this really, really, really interestingly. Um, AI could never come up with Pee Wee Herman. Um, you know, he, the character Pee Wee Herman uh, is, you know, only someone, only Pee Wee Herman could come up with Pee Wee Herman, right? Like, it's like, R. you're not going to have, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like that didn't come up, that, that wasn't written from AI, right? Um, yeah, so it's, it's weird. I feel like, I feel like, uh, you know, AI can tell stories for sure, but are they going to be memorable? No. And if you're looking to make a, a you know, $50 million off of a, of a movie that was generated from an AI script. Okay. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect for the producers out there. I wouldn't expect you like, don't think you're going to make the next like Jurassic park or Terminator two, or like, ET, you know, like those, I don't think that that can come from AI. I, there's a spirit behind human creativity. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too spiritual or out of this world here. And I know a lot of people would be like, oh, whatever. It's just brain, brain waves and whatnot. But, uh, there's, there's a spirit behind creativity. And I think, I think as humans, we can all tell when something is just like off or like not, it doesn't stick. And like I said, you're not going to get, you're not going to get the, the big Hollywood blockbusters that 40 years later, people are like, dude, I still watch that with my kids or like, that was amazing. Um, I feel like it's just going to be weird cookie cutter, like augmentations of like, or amalgamations is a better word of like a bunch of like, other movie scripts that it pulled in and you're going to, okay, I was, it felt off. <laughs> yeah. For sure. um, I, so I, 
I don't think it has any, I don't, I don't think it should have any impact on storytelling um, from a, from an AI standpoint, but I, from a, from a visual effects standpoint, I think it can only enhance really good ideas uh, further. Yeah, I fully agree. Like the ability for technology to come alongside of us as a tool and yeah. just help us get to get to the idea quicker, faster, better is, is incredible. Right. And I think there's a ton of potential there. And I think, I think to, one last thing, I think, yeah. I think visually it has a, it has like a good, like a, a good case for a lot of what we do is collaboration or exploration even. Right. Um, Hey, we want to tell the story of let's, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, it's a comic book. It's a, it's a novel. It's a something that has not been made yet. How, what does this look like? Well, we don't know either, you know, like, well, how do we want to make it look like? So I think, I think that's where AI has the, the, the exploration process. And that happens all the time. Like um, you can watch behind the scenes for every movie that has them and there's concept art. There's, there's exploration of like what things look like Lord of the Rings. What do we want the hobbits, you know, hobbiton to look like? Um, there's concept work for all of this stuff. It's not like they just show up and like say, this is what it's going to look like on the first try. Like there's a lot of like iteration for creativity. And I think that's where AI is going to shine is going to help us, um, uh, do that in iteration faster. Um, but I think, I think it's going to be even cooler. Like, like you, you could train theoretically, have a, have a really smart and talented concept artist come up with like 25 different versions of like, uh, some sort of like spaceship. And if you put those all into an AI thing and train it off of that, now that artist can now iterate and tween and morph between those versions and come up with like, Hey, I like, I like the wings of this ship, but I don't like the engines. And like, you can just do weird, like mashups of it, uh, using, using that. So I think, I think the true power comes when you mix human creativity into the AI training and not just doing like a general model, like, like Dolly or mid journey, which I think is great, but already we're seeing like, it's, it's, it's just taking frames from things and you're like, Hmm, it might not be that ethical to do that. Uh, but if you're, if you're training it off of things that you've shot and you've done purposefully for the purpose of like creative, like, you know, uh, exploration, then I think that that's completely fine. Yeah. Cause I don't want to sit there and draw 300 models and like point to one and say like, that's the one I rather draw like a, a handful set, and then pump that into a machine and like, I'm completely okay with, and then they're, they're, they're all theoretically versions of like my artwork just mashed up together and, and coming up with different like versions of that. So I think that that's where it shines. Are you a PC guy or are you Mac? Uh, I'm both. Um, I will say that when I'm on set or traveling, I'm a MacBook pro. I got a M2, um, relatively new 16 inch, uh, at home, I'm a PC guy. Um, I think I've built the last eight PCs in my lifetime. Um, and 
so I like both. Um, and I even, I don't personally have Linux, but I've used Linux and I think Linux is a great OS, but, um, I will say PC is probably, I like Mac OS better. Uh, but I do like the fact that like PC, I can, I can simultaneously like, um, use it for like heavier rendering, compositing. I can put like a hundred different like SSDs or, or M.2 drives in my machine if I want to, and it's not limited. If I want to update my graphics card, I can just yank it out and put a new one in and that feels like a whole new machine. Yeah. And I can play games on it. So that's yeah. also cool. <laughs> yep. When you're looking at um, other VFX artists or just you yourself, what are like kind of the core programs that you would say you should know and are be working in most often? Um, Nuke is probably the number one piece of software at the moment. Um, just because it's, it's the standard for compositing um, and learning, th learning, learning how to think nodally, I think is, is really important. Houdini, if you're fire and effects and Sims, like is also a nodal program. Um, so thinking nodally is super important. So yeah, nuke all the way. Nuke has some nuke X has tracking features in it. Um, you know, it's a, it's primarily a compositor, uh, but it even has like copycat in it now, which is like an, uh, a machine learning based, uh, thing built right into it. So you could like feed it a few frames of Roto and then it'll try to interpolate in between. I think that's just going to get better and better. So nuke for sure. Um, when it comes to 3d, uh, if you have no money and you're just starting out, Blender. Absolutely, because Blender is, over the years, has become a powerhouse tool and it's free to learn. And once you learn polys, models, shapes, lines, verts, splines, that whole concept, uh, UV maps, uh, it's the same in all software. And it's just the buttons are hotkey differently or the, the menus are in different places. So I think if you're just starting Blender, um, if you want to be marketable, I think like Maya and Houdini are still at the top of the list for the most part. Um, um, and then for tracking, um, Synthize is, is a great piece of software. Um, and tracking is the same thing where if you learn if you learn like placing, you know, your tracking points, uh, looking at your tracking graph, your, your RMS error values and, and, and things like that. I feel like that's, that carries over from software to software. So, um, and the fact that, uh, you know, I think, I think it's relatively cheap, still uh, cheapest version jumping off point that you can get into for tracking. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, if you're into MoGraph, After Effects, Cinema 4D are always like a good place to start. And Cinema 4D is a fantastic piece of software because it's, you know, if you if you want MoGraph and you're going to start with MoGraph, you're going to learn the 3D fundamentals that will carry over into the VFX world and yeah. any other piece of software you're using. So. Well, that's good stuff, man. I know we're well over our time. So I just thank you again so much for yeah, coming for sure. on here. Um, how can we keep up with you, your work, future endeavors? What 
any anything that you want us to follow along at? Uh, well, um, I don't post anything uh, uh, super exciting or good. Uh, it's mostly nerdy, dumb stuff. But um, TN2Josh uh, is my Instagram handle. Um, there's a lot of family photos on there. Every now and again, I'll post photos from like behind the scenes on set or something like that. Um, but uh, and then um, I guess just keep an eye out. Uh, you know, we we got some cool shows that we're going to be working on at Fuse Effects. Um, so uh, those those will start to spool up in February. Thank you, man, so much. This is going to be invaluable for so many people and it was awesome just getting to hear and learn all about this uh kind of at the higher level stuff you're incredibly wise and super talented so thank you for oh, for giving us the the time to do this